It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 14th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week, wow, it seems like I have a new computer. Feels like it anyway. I don't. What I'm speaking into is a three-year-old computer, but it feels brand new. Since the very beginning of my relationship with Vista, it has been severely bifurcated. I liked some of the new security features, even the ones that garnered the most complaints. And I liked, in fact, I loved the overall appearance of the operating system. But I detested the sluggish performance, the long boot and shutdown times, and the fact that two years down the road, some programs still don't work right with Vista. So I'd been thinking about formatting the drive and reinstalling Windows XP, but I had decided that that would simply be too much work and take time I didn't have. I'd wait until next year's Windows 7, I thought. Then a helpful disaster stepped in. On November 23rd, a Sunday evening, Disk Keeper reported that it needed to perform a boot time defragmentation operation. I've done this before, it's no big deal, so I approved the request and rebooted the machine. The defrag appeared to go well, but then the machine wouldn't boot. To make a long and somewhat tedious story as short as I can, the master boot record had been damaged. I was able to fix that, but the file allocation table was spaghetti. No chance of repair. Well, as they say, that's what backup is for. I would have to reinstall the operating system, though, and so the most pressing concern was a choice, Vista or XP. There was never a need for panic. The drive with the problem was drive C. It holds the operating system, applications, some configuration settings, and personalizations. The other drives, D, M, and N, and the local backup drive, Z, were all fine. And I knew that my Carbonite backup was safe and secure hundreds of miles away. So instead of having to worry about lost files and missing data, I could concentrate on the task at hand, reinstalling Windows. Well, the installation hit a snag immediately, right on step one. When I booted to the Windows XP disk, the installer showed only three attached external USB drives. The two serial ATA drives installed internally and configured as RAID, even though RAID wasn't in play, didn't show up. The driver I needed was on a floppy disk, and the computer has no floppy drive. I did, however, have a USB-based floppy drive, so I plugged that in. This time I was able to get all the way to step two before running into a problem. The installer could read the USB-based floppy during the startup phase, so it loaded the drivers it needed, and the SATA drives were visible. But later, when the installer needed to read the driver disk again, the USB device was unavailable. So on Monday, I purchased a floppy drive to install in the system box. Easy job, takes about five minutes. When I opened the computer, I found that there was no data cable for a floppy drive, and all of the smaller power connectors, the one that the floppy drive would need, were in use. The power problem would be pretty easy to solve. I could temporarily borrow power from another device, and I might have been able to find a data cable somewhere around the house, but there was yet another problem. The hinged flap on the floppy drive was broken. 
So I called Marshall Thompson at TCR Computers, discussed the situation with him. TCR is the company that built the computer. Marshall said I wouldn't really need the RAID driver if I configured the SATA drives as IDE and the BIOS. He also suggested that I disable the D drive to avoid having Windows decide to install itself on the wrong drive. Yeah, been there, done that. So I disabled D, but the Windows installer saw one of the USB drives as C and showed what should have been the C drive as D. It wanted to install Windows on an external drive. Bad idea. To resolve that problem, I simply unplugged all of the USB drives and rebooted. Now Windows had only one drive to look at. The only thing it could find was the first drive. It identified that drive as C. You see, Windows can be reasoned with. You just have to be holding a large enough hammer. So installing the operating system turned out to be uneventful. It took about 30 minutes. I then reattached the second internal drive and the three USB drives. A quick check showed that all the files were present as I expected. The drive letters were all wrong, but I had expected that too, and it's easy to fix. Next, I hunted down the Ethernet driver so I could connect to the Internet and activate Windows. After doing that, the next order of business was to install AVG Antivirus and then to connect to the Windows Update site to download and install XP Service Pack 3. It's a big file, took about 30 minutes. I then returned to the Windows Update site to obtain and install some 30 security hardware and driver updates, including Internet Explorer 7. So there was another 15 minutes. The Windows XP firewall is inadequate. So I downloaded and installed the Carbonite firewall, then fixed the drive letter problems by assigning the correct designations with the Windows Disk Manager. So with the computer beginning to resemble an operating machine once again, it was time to start pulling files back from my Carbonite backup. After downloading and installing Carbonite's software, I identified the most important files I wanted to restore to Drive C. In all, that turned out to be about 14,000 files initially. The restoration process took just a few hours, but I left Carbonite in recovery mode because I knew I probably hadn't restored everything I needed just yet. By the time I finished, I had actually restored some 83,433 files from Carbonite, and about 60,000 of those turned out to be files I didn't need. So, why restore them? Well, I knew that the Vista users directory would contain files that I would want. I just didn't know which files they were, or where they were. One big example, the Adobe Lightroom database. My most recent local backup of the database was nearly a week old, and I had added hundreds of files since then. The Carbonite backup was absolutely current, so the time saved was probably about six hours. I can hear some people saying, oh, he should have maintained an image of Drive C. Well, if you're saying that, you're probably right. But that really wouldn't have helped in this case because I had already decided to go back to XP. An image of Drive C with Vista on it would have done nothing to help me. And overall, with no more than about four hours of effort, although I had to put those four hours in over several days, I had most of the critical applications back and running again. Email, web, office, and my time billing system. I think of backup the way I think of brakes on a car. If you don't keep the backup system well-maintained, you are going to be in a lot of trouble sooner or later. My primary computer has five disk drives, two built-in serial ATA devices, and three external USB drives. On drive C, I have the operating system and applications. This is the drive with the boot sector for Windows. On drive D, 
all of my database files, other data files, programming files, websites, graphics, publications, and the like. Work that I do for myself and for clients. The Grub Boot Manager is here, too, and Linux boots from this drive. More about Linux in just a little bit. Drive N contains downloads, freeware, shareware, commercial applications I've downloaded. There are also some corporate files there that I have at home to work on. Now, the downloads would be easy to replace. The corporate files will already be on at least two other computers, and they will be maintained by the corporate backup system, so I'm really not concerned about backing them up. Music that I've downloaded from iTunes or eMusic, or that I've ripped from my own CDs. Well, that's on drive M. This is the drive that also holds reference materials and some instructional programs, most of which would be available for download, or are on CDs or DVDs that are already in my possession. And then there's drive Z. It's a local hot backup of current working files from the other four drives. In the event of a catastrophic disk failure on the PC... I can attach that drive to my notebook computer and be back in operations in about 60 seconds, and I have done that. I keep the local backup because restoring from any online backup, and as I mentioned, the one I prefer is Carbonite, is going to be limited by the speed of the Internet. I could restore critical files in just a few hours, as I did, but it would take at least a week to restore everything from backup if I ever had to do that. The local backup violates the primary rule of backups by being in the same room with the computer it's protecting. But the local backup is safeguarded by Carbonite, at least for drives C and D. And the files on the other drives, well, I consider them to be more or less expendable. Losing all of my music files would be one gigantic annoyance, but I already have much of the music library backed up on DVDs that are stored at the office. Websites are a particular concern for me. Sites and the development files used to create them are all on my D drive. They are also backed up to the Z drive. They are backed up to my backup drive that goes to the office. And they are backed up by Carbonite. Oh, and there's one more copy squirreled away outside the web root on the server that hosts the website. There is simply no such thing as too much backup. So, once again, backup saved the day. The problem I had was an annoyance, but nothing more than that. And I ended up with XP back on my machine. You know, I'd forgotten just how fast this computer is supposed to be. Boot time can now reasonably be measured in seconds, not minutes. And shutting down the computer no longer takes up to ten minutes. But the best improvement from my perspective is that the disk drives are no longer constantly and continuously thrashing. Under Vista, something always seemed to be performing some operation on the disk drives, even after I had turned off most of the Vista services that might have been responsible for that activity. I will miss Vista's pretty face, but XP is like an old friend who knows what I like. Maybe Windows 7 will be a big improvement when or if it ships in 2009, but for now... I'm more than happy with XP. By November 27th, nearly all of the applications that I use regularly were installed and configured. I had taken Carbonite out of restore mode and put it back into backup mode. Total number of files lost, as far as I can tell, zero. With Windows back in operation, I started thinking about the other task that's been tickling around the back of my mind, converting the machine to be a dual-boot machine with Ubuntu Linux. 
I didn't have the current version, so I needed to download the 700 megabyte ISO file and burn a CD. All of that took about 30 minutes, and the rest was just about as easy. I booted to the Ubuntu CD and confirmed via the live session option that the critical hardware components were all properly supported. Next, click the install icon, review the options, decide how much disk to allocate to Linux, give the partition editor permission to proceed. At that point, I did notice one oddity, though. Linux had detected drive 1 instead of drive 0 as the boot device, so it wanted to install on drive 1. And what that meant was the bootloader would be installed on a drive that wasn't my primary boot device. Hmm. Well, I figured the solution would be easy, so I allocated 100 gigabytes of the 500 gigabyte drive to Linux and proceeded. Resizing the existing partition and creating a new partition consumed another half hour or so, and then the CD installed Linux in the new partition. I expected not to see the Grub boot manager when I restarted the computer, and I was not surprised. Windows booted almost as if nothing had happened. Almost. The operating system did notice that somebody had been doing something on Drive D and insisted on running check disk. When that process completed, I confirmed that all the files I expected to be on the D drive were actually on the D drive, and then I opened the disk manager to examine the new partition. The process left a 4 gigabyte scrap on the drive. 4 gigabyte scrap. Now, who would have ever thought a few years ago that you'd call a 4 gigabyte disk partition a scrap? Anyway, the process left a 4 gigabyte scrap on the drive, so I figured I'd have to puzzle that out later. I did. It seems to be a swap area for Linux. So then all I had to do was find a way to boot to that partition. I restarted the machine and headed for the BIOS settings. There I changed the boot order from drive 0, then drive 1, to drive 1, then drive 0. On the next boot, the Grub bootloader popped up, asked whether I wanted to run Windows or Linux. I selected Windows just to confirm that the process would work properly for what I consider to be my primary operating system. It did. So I then restarted the computer again and selected Linux. Again, no problem. So, I guess I should give a big thanks to Vista for making this all possible. I noticed a spam in my slot bucket this week. It claimed to be from FreeCreditReport.com. And the return address was odd, FreeCreditReport.com at UntieGrain.com. So the first thing I wondered about is, who is this UntieGrain? Well, I found that this is actually Elite Suppression Concepts, a company that is, in its own words, the leading provider of direct marketing solutions and database management that enables marketers to maximize and manage the value of their permission-based subscriber lists. Permission-based. I haven't given Elite Suppression Concepts or Untie Grain, or for that matter, anybody associated with FreeCreditReport.com, permission to mail to me. So clearly, this is just another ordinary spam. But you might receive a message like this just on the day when you're thinking about asking for your free credit report. You maybe follow the link. If you do, it could cost you nearly $200 a year. Now, that doesn't fit my definition of free. The company's website says, and I quote, Elite Suppression Concepts creates innovative direct response campaigns to promote products and services online. Companies with compelling products can benefit from our expertise in creative design, testing, campaign planning, tracking, and optimization. Unique. Okay, that's like in sending a message that offers a free credit report, but then disclaims the offer with these words. 
When you order your free credit report here, you will begin your free trial membership in Triple Advantage Credit Monitoring. If you don't cancel your membership within the seven-day trial period, you will be billed $14.95 for each month that you continue your membership. Yeah, that sure is innovative. The next paragraph tells you where you can get a credit report that is actually free. It says, ConsumerInfo.com, Inc. and FreeCreditReport.com are not affiliated with the annual free credit report program. Under a new federal law, and by the way, this law is many years old, under a new federal law, you have the right to receive a free copy of your credit report once every 12 months from each of the three nationwide consumer reporting companies. To request your free annual report under that law, you must go to www.annualcreditreport.com. And it appears to give you a helpful link to that. The only problem is, if you click there, you go right back to untiegrain.com, and they forward you to freecreditreport.com. So you're back where you started. You might wonder what kind of crooks own freecreditreport.com. The domain is registered to Experian. Experian. That's one of the three credit reporting agencies required by law to provide a free credit report once per year, but of course, only through annualcreditreport.com. They can do whatever they want on freecreditreport.com. Now, Experian may or may not have anything to do with the spam. Elite suppression concepts may or may not have anything to do with what appears to be a click fraud operation. It seems to me, though, that any legitimate business, such as, oh, say, Experian, should be doing everything it can to avoid accepting business from questionable operations such as this. And how far removed is Experian, anyway? Experian's website, www.experian.com, has exactly the same offer on its main page, along with the microtype that explains the $14.95 per month bill if you sign up and then forget to cancel. Do you really need a $15 per month service to track your credit information? Well, most experts say you don't. Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion see these services as cash cows. Every four months, you can visit annualcreditreport.com and pull a report from one of the credit agencies. So, save your money. And if you want your real free credit report, check the TechBiter Worldwide website. There you will find a link to annualcreditreport.com, the one that really gives you a free credit report. Until December 11th, Amazon.com offered a donations service that was used by a lot of websites, including mine, to collect donations from users. On December 8th, the company sent a notice to all users. The notice said, and I quote, Beginning December 11th, 2008, the Amazon Honor System will be discontinued. This means that pay boxes on member websites and pay pages on Amazon.com will no longer function. Amazon gave no reason whatsoever for the move, but said that the Amazon Honor System members should make plans immediately to remove the Honor System pay boxes from their websites. I, I don't have any problem with the company's decision to abolish the service, but giving users just 72 hours notice? That seems a little uncaring. Eliminating the Amazon option from a website, they said, can be done by simply removing the HTML code originally provided for payboxes from your page code document. 
Well, on sites such as this one, where the link was on more than 450 pages, that might not be so simple. Fortunately, my websites all use Dreamweaver templates, so the process was relatively simple. Other technologies, such as server-side includes, would also make changing hundreds or thousands of pages easy. But developers who simply pasted the code on page after page over the years, well, they would have been faced with changing every single page in just a few days. So, if you've been wondering, that explains why the Amazon link that used to be at the bottom of every page on the TechBiter Worldwide website is now gone, and why that link has been replaced with one from PayPal, which has a similar service. Amazon says that the Amazon Honor System has served an important function for members and for Amazon.com since its inception of fall 2001. And Amazon promises to continue support for charitable giving with new technologies. They didn't explain what new technologies. In nerdly news, the browser moving target keeps moving. Firefox 3.1 is on the way. Beta 2 has been released, and the folks at Mozilla are talking about improved performance and compatibility as being major enhancements in this new version. If Firefox is your primary browser, and if you use a lot of plugins, and you really depend on those plugins, you might want to delay just a bit because new versions invariably break most of the add-ons. Or, as the folks at Mozilla put it, uh, Firefox 3.1 Beta 2 is now a public preview release intended for developer testing and community feedback. It includes many new features as well as improvements to performance, web compatibility, and speed. We recommend that you read the entire release notes and known issues, also known as bugs, before installing this beta. With the release date approaching, this beta is available in 54 languages, so the testers can confirm that localized versions work right. A new private browsing mode, which is similar to Chrome's stealth mode, allows users to browse without having Firefox store any traces of where you've been. This is great for online holiday shopping, or perhaps for porn surfing. And if you forget, you can easily remove history of your past few hours of browsing or remove all traces of a specific website. A new TraceMonkey JavaScript engine is enabled by default, and it is supposed to provide faster JavaScript rendering. Faster rendering is also included in the new Gecko layout engine. That's a component that controls the appearance of the sites you look at. If you'd like more information, the TechBiter Worldwide website has a link to the Firefox website. Yahoo is counting another 1,500 jobs as the once high-flying company continues to slip, and the company has amended its poison pill employee severance agreement that it put in place when Microsoft was trying to acquire Yahoo. The changes caused a rebound in Yahoo shares on Wall Street, but the price is still less than half of what Microsoft had offered, and Yahoo had deemed insufficient. The company employs about 15,000 people worldwide. Jerry Yang, who is stepping down as CEO, says the reductions are hard but necessary. In a memo to employees, Yang emphasized what he calls the need to align costs with revenues. Yahoo still has substantial value as a brand. It is one of the most popular websites. Yahoo's search engine is the Internet's second most popular Although it is far behind Google, Yahoo has about 20% of the market share. Microsoft has less than 10%. The rest is almost entirely Google. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 14th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.